Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, Kevin. I'm delighted to have you here to talk about such an important book, Schizophrenia, Science, Psychoanalysis, and Culture. I know this is a book that you wrote with your father, who's a very famous psychoanalyst. Uh, Unfortunately, he's out of the area and is not able to be with us. Not that you can't be around the world, but internet connections are uh, a little bit dicey in some places. So anyway, we are going to talk today, and, and that's wonderful. Uh, we're going to be discussing this this book, as I said, which is it's very important and it's very informative. And you could be um, an expert in the field or somebody who's just interested. And I think uh, both types of people would get a lot out of it. So let me start by saying a little bit about your father, Van McVulcan. He's a medical doctor and a professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of Virginia. He's a training and supervising analyst emeritus at the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis. It just happens to be that I am also a member there, which really doesn't have anything to do with it. But um, the group is is very happy that he's been a member for, for so long. He's also president emeritus of the International Dialogue Initiative and past president of the Virginia Psychoanalytic Society, the Turkish American Neuropsychiatric Society, and the International Society of Political Psychology and the American College of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Vulcan is internationally known for his 40 years of work bringing together cultural, uh, ethnic, and national groups for dialogue and mutual understanding, which of course is very important these days. After his 2002 retirement, he became the senior Eric Erickson scholar for 10 years at the Erickson Institute at the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. So I will now introduce you, Kevin Vulcan, has an EDD, a PhD, an MPH, he's a founding faculty member and professor of psychology at California State University, Channel Islands, where, the res- where he researches and teaches courses on psychopathology and atypical behaviors, personality theory, as well as uh, Nazi Germany, a course on that. Um, I believe he teaches that with a historian and also um, Eastern philosophy. Dr. Volkan also currently serves on the graduate medical education faculty for the Community Memorial Hospital System in Ventura, California, where he teaches and conducts research with medical residents and as an adjunct faculty member for California Lutheran University's clinical psychology doctoral program. He holds doctorates in clinical and quantitative psychology. He is a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health and a former Harvard Medical School faculty member and administrator. Dr. Vulcan is an expert on extreme psychopathologies and has testified before the United States Senate on pathological and dangerous fetishes. He has also uh, appeared on numerous television, radio, and podcasts as a psychological expert. Dr. Vulcan's clinical training and experience is in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, though he also has experience using a wide variety of other modalities, 
in clinical practice. He has uh, practice, his skills in clinical psychology as a staff psychologist in a state hospital and in private practice. So welcome, Kevin. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here today for this interview. Yeah, so I'm going to start right in with the questions. Okay. Uh, unless you have something you'd like to say. No, no. Um, that, that was a great introduction. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, can you give our listeners a brief overview of schizophrenia, including typical symptoms one may exhibit if he or she has this mental disorder? Yeah. So schizophrenia, you know, unfortunately, you know, many of your listeners will be able to go out in their town and go out to the downtown area or wherever and walk around and see, you know, homeless individuals talking to themselves or mumbling or walking around and, um, and you'll be able to experience, um, you know, what it's like to be around somebody with schizophrenia alive. And of course, you know, where I am in California, we have a huge um, homeless population of which many, many, if not the majority, you know, probably could be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, in schizophrenia, we typically think of the of the symptoms of it as uh, in, in, in two ways, as both positive symptoms and negative symptoms. Uh, the positive symptoms are things like hearing voices, hallucinations, things like that. Um, and those are the symptoms that the medications tend to um, tend to uh, suppress the most. And then we then we have the negative symptoms, which are a little more difficult to deal with. And those things include, you know, uh, depression, um, cognitive restriction, um, you know, flat affect, uh, you know, uh, anhedonia, things like that, anhedonia, lack of volition, um, you know, those kinds of things. And those, those are really the main symptoms that, that we see, um, you know, it's a pretty miserable, a pretty miserable thing to, to have, especially, um, if it's untreated and, um, and, you know, again, you see people out in the street all the time, you know, with this stuff. Um, and then of course, you know, the, the main treatment for it is, is, uh, you know, psychotropic medications, antipsychotics, um, they don't work very well. Uh, they, you know, they, they suppress mostly the positive symptoms, uh, but there's lots of side effects. People don't like to take them. They make them, they make people feel crappy. Um, you know, and of course there hasn't been really much, much, uh, improvement. You know, there's a second generation of antipsychotics, but they're really not that much better than the original generation. And if you're a cynical person, you might say that those were created basically because the original antipsychotics went off patent and the drug companies need to make money. So they, you know, they tweaked a few molecules and things, but that's, that's, that's a cynical view. You know, I mean, <clears throat> what they're really trying to do is hone in on, on the dopamine receptors and try to, you know, get the drugs to the dopamine receptors where it's going to be helpful and minimize the dopamine receptors where it's not helpful because of course dopamine's all over the brain and it's the drugs are kind of like a shotgun approach. And so that's where a lot of the side effects come from. Um, so not, you know, it's unfortunate because it's not very, it, it's not very, um, the drugs are, are, are really, they don't cure anybody. 
And, um, you know, my, my view, I think this is probably one of the reasons why, you know, having worked at medical schools, one of the reasons why, you know, not, not many, uh, you know, young medical students want to go into psychiatry because they get out and then they, they, you know, they're most psychiatrists now are just prescribing medication. They're not doing any psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. And so they, they're not really curing anybody. They're just, they're just doing symptom reduction. And I think, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you know, you want to cure people, right? So I, this is one of the reasons I think contributes to the decline in the number of people going into psychiatry, which is very unfortunate because we need psychiatrists. Um, we have a huge shortage here where I'm at um, and, you know, it's, it's needed, but I think that's one of the reasons. And, you know, because schizophrenia is one of the things, you know, that a lot of psychiatrists treat. So that's probably a long-winded answer, but. Um, no, I think it's. It's very informative, and I think it's it's everywhere. And I I think people maybe don't want to look at it. I mean, you're so right about the homeless homeless population. I'm just thinking about what is in the news on the East Coast. And there's a lot about San Francisco and yeah. the homeless yeah. people there. And I mean, what are we talking about? To I mean, to a large extent, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Some well, you know, and, and I'm I'm from the San Francisco area. You know, that's that's where I I grew up. Uh, but now I, I live near Los Angeles, and um, I will tell you, downtown Los Angeles is unbelievable. You cannot believe that you're actually seeing this in America. I mean, there's literally square miles of homeless people, most of whom are diagnosable with schizophrenia, and so the the, the lack of safety net for people is really really quite quite shocking um you know now our governor has a he, he's proposing essentially essentially my take on essentially what he's proposing now is to basically you know start reopening mental hospitals you know one of the reasons why we have such a huge homeless population is because um at least in california you know in the 1960s late 60s and especially i think ronald reagan you know, started closing down the the, the large mental hospitals and there's some good reasons to do that right there was a lot of abuse in those places and there was things that bad things that went on um and you know the idea that you do community mental health and you integrate you know mental health patients into the community those are all really good ideas but part of the problem is that of course none of the a lot of the ideals never got actually fulfilled and the funding wasn't there and that's we're seeing the end game now of what happened when you closed all the mental hospitals that people are out on the street and so our our governor governor Newsom is talking about you know you know, going back to having, you know, facilities for folks and, you know, maybe maybe doing some involuntary uh, commitment of people who are either a danger to themselves, usually, and very rarely a danger to others, but sometimes, and then maybe putting people in the, into treatment. And, um, you know, if, if you go to downtown Los Angeles and you go to one of these square mile areas where it's just homeless people, you know, you start to think it it, it makes sense. Um, you know, of course, a lot of civil liberties people are against it. So there's a lot of debate about this now going back and forth. And, you know, we'll see how it turns out. But, you know, something should be done. You know, something needs to be done. Yeah. People with schizophrenia need to be taken care of. If they're out on the street, they don't have a, a safety net or a family to take care of them. Um, and, you know, the shortage of psychiatrists needs to be dealt with um, in some way. We need to be recruiting medical students into psychiatry or, the other controversial thing we need to be doing is perhaps, you know, allowing psychologists uh, to, you know, prescribe psychotropic medication. And that's been a, a big debate here in California. It's happening in a few states around the country, Louisiana, 
I think New Mexico, uh, Chicago, or uh, uh, Illinois was the latest one. Guam and in the armed services, psychologists can get prescription privileges. And that's probably probably going to happen eventually, considering we have nurse practitioners doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, we don't right. have enough psychiatrists. That may happen. I'm 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 agnostic about the issue. It can go either way. I don't really, you know, for me, you know, but I, I do think we do need people to to administer medication. I do think medication plays an important part in treating schizophrenia, even though we'll talk a little bit about that later, about the kind of person with schizophrenia yeah. who might who might be amenable to psychotherapy. Um, yeah. And that is something we're also seeing now, um, you know, more different types of psychotherapy being used to work with people with schizophrenia, um, uh -huh. you know, in, in, including psychoanalysis, but also things other than psychoanalysis. Uh -huh. Well, why don't we just briefly, uh, we'll get into that soon, actually, but some people actually, I don't think, know about genetic components. Could you say yeah. a little bit, just a minute or two about, about that? Yeah, um, there are, uh, I'm going to pull up my notes here too, because I don't want to get this stuff wrong. <laughs> and again, and I, and I don't claim to be the expert on this stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm like, you know, Isaac Newton said, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants so I can see further. Um, but there, you know, there, there are genetic linkages. The genetic linkages are, when you look at the causes of schizophrenia, you know, and uh, when you run the numbers and you look at prevalence rates and things like that, you see the genetic stuff um, is very, very high. You know, there's a very high genetic um, component to schizophrenia. Um, and there's a number of genes that are candidate genes for schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, there's two types of analysis, you you know, that, that scientists do when they're looking at, um, you know, genetic components. They do a linkage analysis um, where they're looking for co-segregation of alleles within family members. And there's also association analysis, which where they're looking at populations and they're looking at things coming up, associations and populations. So those are the two kinds of studies they do to get at these things. And um, uh, so there's a number of genetic candidates for schizophrenia. There is no silver bullet one or two genes that 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 you know are the causes of schizophrenia. That's an important thing to say, um, even though the concordance rates for uh, monozygotic twins, you know, identical twins is, is really high. It's 40 to 50 to 60%, depending on what you're looking at. It, it's really high, but there is no one, one gene. So it, it's some kind of a network of genes. And there's a bunch of gene candidates, you know, we could talk about, um, you know, individual genes, but there's no one that actually, that actually is responsible for, for schizophrenia. Um, but there are a bunch of candidate genes that have a contributory factor. And I remember I took a class when I was at Harvard on psychiatric genetics, which was maybe the hardest class I ever took in my entire life. And I remember we had a biostatistician come in and do the math to show the association of like, I think it was like some, like 60 genes, you know, and their contribution to schizophrenia. And it was like, the most difficult statistics I'd ever seen in my life. I barely could follow along with it. It was very, very complicated. So, you know, and, and this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to tease out, you know, like the contribution of all these genes and how they contribute to schizophrenia. Um, and so there's a lot of them and they, and they contribute in, in various ways. Um, a lot of the genes have to do with, you know, coding for things like, um, uh, enzymes that break down uh, neurotransmitters or there any things involved in neurotransmission. Um, 
those kind of things, right? And and so there there there's a lot of the genes have to do with with you know things in the brain. Um, I think maybe there's also some brain structure things, um, you know, as well. Uh, cell signaling, neuronal growth. Uh, some of the genes do with that uh, myelination. There's some genes that have to do with myelination, guidance of the axions, where the axions go, things like that. Um, but th those are the kind of things that that you find. Um, and then also, let's see, some proteins get uh, are associated uh, where um, expression of a certain gene may reduce the amount of uh, some kinds of proteins that are made. Um, there's genes associated with working memory, um, uh, memory deficits, uh, even some cross things with lower IQ, though, of course, that's not necessarily something you see in schizophrenia. Um, but there is some, there can be cognitive impairment, some of these negative symptoms. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's kind of an overview of it without going into the, into the, uh, you know, to the nitty gritty, nitty detail. Gritty neat, I can't say gritty detail of, of uh, genetic stuff. The other thing that's really important when thinking about genetics of schizophrenia is epigenetics. And epigenetics uh -huh. now in psychology is a super hot area of research. And if you're, I don't know if your listeners know about epigenetics, but epigenetics is the expression of the genes, right? So you think of the genes itself, sort of like the computer analogy, the genes are like, the hardware of the computer, right? Yeah. And then the operating system that you run on your computer—is it Mac OS or I, you know, uh, you know, Microsoft, whatever it might be—really yeah. actually lets the computer components, you know, the expression of the computer components. And epigenetics is exactly that. It has to do with, with um, uh, usually methylation of you know sites on on uh, you know DNA, you know which ones get expressed and which ones don't. And epigenetics is really interesting because epigenetics, you know, genetics, we know, you know, functions in a, in a Darwinian way, you know, you know, our genes are, 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 are shaped by natural selection. Epigenetics is more Lamarckian in evolution. You know, Lamarck was a, you know, uh, guy around, you know, Darwin's time who had a theory of evolution where, you know, you acquire characteristics from your parents, right? You know, if you're a giraffe and you reach for leaves and you stretch your neck, then your kids are going to have a longer neck, right? That was a Lamarckian evolution. And epigenetics actually functions in more of a Lamarckian way, right? So if your parents, you know, smoke cigarettes or do something, then you, you know, when you know, they're, they're, the children will, you know, have different epigenetic, different gene expression based on what the parents did, or even the grandparents in some cases and so this is a huge thing and so we're finding now that there is a lot of you know um interest in in looking at epigenetics of schizophrenia you know and the thing about epigenetics which is really interesting is that epigenetic changes can be reversed right okay. so if you have epigenetic changes that 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 may you know promote gene expression that relates to schizophrenia or gene suppression that relates to schizophrenia those actually can be reversed and one of the big hot areas where they're looking for uh, new kinds of drug candidates to treat schizophrenia are, is drugs that might reverse um, uh, uh, DNA methylation, things related to, to epigenetics. And so that's a, that should be, in my opinion, a hot area of, of, of yeah. uh, inquiry, you know, by drug companies, hopefully they're doing this. I know that there's been some research on this because epigenetic changes can be reversed. And so um, this is this is something that um, I think if you think about this is going to be a big deal uh, in the into the future. So 
an area we want to look at. The other thing that I am very interested in, I actually wouldn't mind doing research on this, is I think, and I think there's probably some good evidence, I think that psychotherapy, psychoanalysis also may be a mechanism by where uh, epigenetics can be reversed, can be changed. That, you know, somebody who undergoes psychotherapy or you know intensive psychoanalysis or something you know we could do a study where we 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 measure epigenetic markers you know you know pre and then we they people go through some kind of treatment for a period of time whatever and then we look at epigenetic markers after and see in addition to symptom you know changes you know in the whatever's going on schizophrenia whatever it might be but we also look and see that the epigenetic patterns have changed and i think that would be a really fantastic area of research to do um and uh if anybody wanted to write a grant and you know do that i would be happy to volunteer to be on that study I, I think it should be done um we know that psychotherapy can make changes in people you know obviously in in um you know can actually cure mental illness and i think you know epigenetics may be one of the mechanisms by wh whereby talk therapy of some kind may actually be able to affect somebody's epigenetic makeup and i think that would be a fantastic thing and i i think also you know specific to schizophrenia i think that is um you know that that may be something that we may be able to demonstrate so um yeah epigenetics really fascinating uh area um uh and again there's been a number of studies um where they've looked at this with schizophrenia and again without going into the gritty details you know um you know they're Again, this also may relate to some of the things that may be related to schizophrenia. Some of the causal relationships may be causal because they are making epigenetic changes or they're, they're setting up an epigenetic pattern in people. So again, you know, we need to look at all those kind of things. Um, you know, uh, some of the stuff that has been related to schizophrenia and epigenetics include, you know, alcohol use, uh, antipsychotic medication supposedly can make some epigenetic changes, body mass index, some brain anatomy, cognition, the family history of schizophrenic illness may not just be genetic, it can be epigenetic as well. Uh, when the disease onsets, uh, you know, gender, um, you know, illness duration, tobacco use, other things like that. A bunch of these things, these sort of environmental factors can be related to epigenetic changes. And so those things that need to be looked at. Fascinating stuff, really. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really hoping there's going to be some more, um, some more research. Yeah. On this. No, that sounds great. And I would like to sort of towards the end of this interview, talk about why you think that's possible. I have a hypothesis, but I may or may not be right. But I, I noticed in the book, you you talk about the connection between child abuse, trauma, and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So is that one thing we're also talking about here? Yeah. Um, probably I in my my estimation that um child abuse probably well, you know, one of the things that we know is that is that stressors, you know, um are you know things that that stress the brain especially you know have have some sort of uh, causal effect on schizophrenia and so of course one of the mechanisms for that could be could be epigenetics right so that you have certain you know stressors and that causes you know especially in a in a in a younger uh child right that these these cause um cause changes to the epigenetics i think that's that's highly highly possible um you know and there are a number of uh, of things that are um that are that are you know that were thought to be causal for schizophrenia and i have a whole list here i should pull these up 
because I don't I don't want to just rely on my fallible memory here. But um, uh, you know, you can look and see um, you know, a, a number of studies have been done, and you can look in these studies and you can see um, you know, there's all sorts of environmental things, right? And the environmental things would include things like um you know, place and time of birth, you know, there's the slightly, you know, being born in the winter gives slight more risk of schizophrenia, being born in an urban place, a slight more risk of schizophrenia. And then there's, then there's infectious uh, agents, um, you know, having flu, uh, either the child or the mother, you know, can affect um, uh, respiratory uh, illness. Um, uh, rubella, of course, is a known uh, pretty big risk factor. You know, rubella is like, you know, you, People, I believe the mother having rubella. Um, don't take take my word for it. I believe it's the mother, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, having rubella is a little over five times, you know, um, you know, more likely to get schizophrenia in a child. Uh, polio is about almost no risk, um, maybe slight amount. Um, any CNS infection, any infection of the brain, a huge risk, six times more likely schizophrenia. Um, undergoing famine. You know, famine is, uh, you know, you know, confers about twice the risk of schizophrenia. Um, uh, and of course, you know, we know that immigrants, you know, um, are at risk for schizophrenia. And sometimes immigrants are, you know, fleeing places with famine and, you know, um, you know, natural disasters or human disasters, you know, those kinds of things. And so they're under these kind of stressors. Uh, bereavement uh grieving you know uh over six times the uh uh, uh thing so I, I assume that's the mother um it's a prenatal thing you know so bereavement having a mother who's bereaving you know grieving over something um experiencing flood uh experiencing a mother experiencing the baby you know the, uh, not wanting the baby um confers a risk um then there's obstruct uh, obstetric complications um RH in, incompatibility, almost three times likely hypoxia, about three times more likely. Any CNS damage, you know, if it's severe CNS damage, up to seven times more likely to have schizophrenia. Low birth weight, uh, you know, about uh, one and a half to two times. Uh, preeclampsia, almost three times more likely. And then, of course, the big one is the family history, which would be the genetics, which almost 10 times more likely to, to uh, you know, have the child have the schizophrenia so you know those are those are those are the main things that are out there excuse me what what about covid do we have any data on that we we don't as far as i know there's not like there's been a couple studies that have been um published so far the last time i looked was i don't know a year or two ago um but because we know that covid affects the brain um you know it is very likely that we're going to see increased cases of schizophrenia because of the COVID pandemic. I would say, in my opinion, almost certainly we're going to see an increase because we see it, you know, with other infectious agents that infect the central nervous system. You know, we, we know for a fact that COVID infects the brain, affects the brain and, you know, leads to all sorts of cognitive things, you know, we're seeing with long COVID now. And I know I have a number of colleagues, uh, you know, medical colleagues who are treating long COVID and all of them are reporting to me that there are cognitive issues with long COVID. They're seeing tons of this stuff now. And so I think, of course, if you have some predisposition towards schizophrenia, this kind of stress in the CNS certainly is going to, is going to trigger some schizophrenia. We're going to see some, I mean, I, without a doubt in my mind, 
or yeah. glycine increase. Just um, which again points out why we need better treatments and things like that for for this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and not just schizophrenia. We'll probably see stuff with schizoaffective disorder too. Um, you know, and, and probably schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder might would be my guess. We're going to see more of those things as well. You know, because there's a lot of overlap with schizophrenia. Um, we may see more prodromal schizophrenia in people who otherwise might be resilient towards schizophrenia because of COVID and things like that. You know, that's also another thing that um, I think, you know, we need to be on the watch for. And again, you know, we'll talk a little bit, but those people who are sort of prodromal schizophrenia, you know, those are the people who are going to be, in my opinion, probably the best candidates for, uh, you know, some kind of psychotherapy or even psychoanalysis. Um you know, which could prevent them from progressing to, you know, full-blown schizophrenia. So I think that's, I think it's an important thing that we need to be watching for as, you know, as health professionals, mental health professionals. That was my next question, that the, uh, among people suffering from schizophrenia, and I guess you're talking about before it becomes full-blown, but yeah. who is a good candidate for talk? Yeah. Well, and so so I, I will give a caveat here. Um, you know, I personally have not treated psychotic people, people with schizophrenia with psychoanalysis or, you know, I'm trained in psychoanalytic therapy. I'm not an analyst. Um, but, you know, my training has mostly been, you know, I work mostly work with, you know, uh, schizophrenic people in a mental hospital setting which is my background. My dad is the one who actually treats um you know, people with psychotic illness, schizophrenia, and the variants, you know, via psychoanalysis. Uh, and he has been very successful at treating people. And this is something you don't see much in the United States. You know, there are some places where you can go if you're, you know, you know, schizophrenic and get treatment. You know, I think Austin Riggs, actually, Austin Riggs Center is one of these places, very good place to go if you're schizophrenic and get, you know, very intensive psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. Uh, but it's not typical in the United States. It's more typical in Europe and I believe also in Latin America um, where you can go and, and you know, get psychotherapy. Um, a lot of the psychotherapy that is used for schizophrenia, and it, it, there is more use of it, but a lot of it is really more supportive. It's helping people cope with having schizophrenia as opposed to actually trying to, you know, you know, deal with the schizophrenia itself. And I would include a lot of the therapies, you know, supportive therapies are like that, um, you know, family therapies, um, possibly even cognitive behavioral therapy, though there's been a lot of research now, starting to be more research now on using cognitive behavioral therapy with schizophrenic people. But I do think that it probably falls somewhere in the line of kind of more supportive therapy, at least, you know, think about it. I think about it that way. And of course, then there's behavior therapy, which is what I was required to practice when I was in the hospital working with schizophrenic patients. Uh, and behavior therapy really is more about dealing with the expression of schizophrenic uh, people, you know, their expression, their behavioral expression, than it is dealing with the schizophrenia itself. And because of that, it has a kind of, you know, patient management component to a you know, large patient management component. So what you consider to be sort of a... Um, uh, uh, success in behavioral therapy is really what you're really doing is saying that we're successfully managing this patient in the hospital. We're making them quiet. We're making them easier to deal with. You know, we're making them, you know, they're fitting into the hospital social scene, you know, better as opposed to actually working with schizophrenia. So when I talk about psychotherapy and I talk about psychoanalytic 
clinical therapy, either analysis or psychotherapy or whatever is in the gray area in between. And I will do a plug for my new book where we talk about some of the gray area in between. Um, you know, we're really talking about, you know, really dealing with the schizophrenic, uh, you know, illness itself. And this is what my dad has really, you know, done a lot of work uh, uh, with and worked with a lot of people with schizophrenia. And of course, in the book, we have some wonderful case histories that, um, that you know, that, that, that he provided. And, um, and the idea is that if you can catch somebody in, you know, either before they have a full-blown, um, uh, you know, psychotic break or after, after the first psychotic break, but maybe the person isn't treated with medication. Uh -huh. Those are probably the best candidates. That's not to say somebody who had schizophrenia, who had maybe multiple psychotic breakthroughs on medication, couldn't be treated with psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic therapy. I do think they could be. And the reason I say that is because there is some little bit of evidence, or maybe more than a little bit of evidence, there's some evidence in some studies that show that the antipsychotic medications themselves may make structural or even epigenetic changes to the brain that sort of, um, I guess you would say, without sort of in a layman's terms, you would say sort of lower the threshold for the psychotic symptoms. And so that you need more of the drug to, to, you know, control those. Once you're on the drugs, you kind of need that to control the symptoms. You know, if you go off, you're likely to have more rebound kinds of things. So there's not, a, it's not a ton of evidence for that, but there is some. And so probably the best person, you know, you could get would be somebody who hasn't been medicated yet. Um, but that's okay. not to say somebody who's on medication couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't, um, you know, benefit from psychotherapy. And then the other thing I think you would want to look at to some degree is, you know, person maybe have schizophrenia, but you know, what is their executive function like, you know, what is their ego function? Are they able to marshal some ego function um, in the service of, of, of therapy? You know, are they able to make, are they able to, you know, you know, I think schizophrenic people do make a transference with the therapist, but are they able to sort of, in a way, um, make use of that transference via the executive function, via the ego function, right? And so, you know, in that in that sense, I think I think you know that's also going to be that's also going to say something about the 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 patient that would benefit from you know this sort of intensive therapy. Um, and I think when you look at my dad's cases in the book, you'll see some of that. Um, some of that uh, will make sense. You know, the, 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 some of the cases, you know, they have some capacity for reflection on themselves. You know, they they do have the the lack of, I mean, I, I would just term it lack of object integration that you would you would expect sort of in a schizophrenic person. But they're they're able to marshal some some sort of um, you know cognitive function, ego function, to be able to sort of participate in the therapy. I guess that's the word I would want to use. Right. And so that that's how you're going to be able to tell, you know, you, you know, you sit down with the person, you know, you, 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 you know, what you're really going to do is to help this person. And again, I'm just going to give sort of general terms here. You really want to help the person with schizophrenia understand what their symptoms mean, you know, the, sim the symbolic meaning of the symptoms that they're having. And that could be the hallucinations. It could be, you know, whatever they're feeling, you know, they're, they're, the you know the, the the affective states that they're in things like that and if they have the capacity to reflect on those things to some degree then that's what you're going to try to to work with and i think that's um and then again you know understanding the 
what I would call the phenomenology of of the schizophrenic experience, right? Understanding what the patient is going through, and as my dad says so so brilliantly and so um, uh, humanly, is to be able to walk with the patient through their journey, right? And then you understand, and this is we had in the book. You know, my dad talks about sort of this this um, you know the psychotic break and the experience that's that that schizophrenic people with schizophrenia have. Um, you know, in the psychotic break, the sort of start star explosion experience they have, and then the, the formation of this sort of we call it the donut personality. You know, where they have this, you know, sort of grandiose stuff on the outside, but inside, you know, there's all this kind of, um, you know, unintegrated stuff. And that if you understand that, then you kind of have a sense of what the person is going through. And that I think, as a therapist, that helps you to basically to walk with that patient better and that is something i think is really missing from in my opinion probably all other forms of psychotherapy that you might do with somebody with schizophrenia i mean i think this is really unique to psychoanalysis that we want to understand we need to understand the patient's experience in order to be with that patient and then of course that's going to engender a transference which is the transference is going to be the thing that helps that patient over time start to integrate their unintegrated, you know, object representations, things like that, and then get them to a point where, as my dad will tell you, get them to a point where now, you know, they they integrate things enough, they get to the point where they're sort of like a they have borderline personality organization, and then you work with them as if they're a borderline personality organization, and you work with them, you get them to a sort of neurotic personality organization level, right, and then you do you know, kind of at that point, you're working with them as you work with any other, you know, neurotic analytic uh, uh, patient, right? So that's the kind of thing. So it's a long haul. It's not an easy, easy thing to do, but it's certainly, certainly in some cases, it's possible. And I think my dad's cases, he makes the case for that. And my dad's not the only one. I mean, you know, we have, you know, there's the work of Harold Searles, um, you know, who, who worked a lot with psychotic patients. Um, there's, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Bryce Boyer is another one, you know, uh, uh, late Bryce Boyer worked with uh, psychotic individuals, you know, people like Kernberg, you know, um, who I think could work, you know, he's not a big fan of, you know, yeah. at least the way he's written, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what he would say now if you talk to him and, you know, with his transference focused psychotherapy, I look at transference focused psychotherapy and go, oh, that could work with schizophrenic people. You know, somebody ought to try that, you know, so maybe somebody has, I don't know. Um, um, I think Fonagy's mineralization based psychotherapy, also another possible candidate working with schizophrenic people. I'm hoping that there are young people out there doing some of this, you know, looking at some of these things or working with schizophrenic people. Um, but I do think I do think it's possible. And I think it's quite underutilized in this country. And I wish if I, you know, had a wish, I wish that, you know, this type of intensive psychotherapy could be a regular thing for at least an option for people who are suffering from schizophrenia, you know, at least, a, you know, a first line thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a long winded answer to that. But that that's kind of how I, I I'm looking at it. Yeah, I, I have a, a hypothesis, which I'll save to the end, but I have I have a hypothesis that, and I, I wrote about it in my first book, that a connection with a good analyst is what's really curative. Yes, yes, absolutely. Whatever their issue is. I mean, that's absolutely. been my yes. experience. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer that actually. So again, shameless plug for my our, our new book I wrote with my dad called How the Mind Works. One of the things I talk about there is... Um, 
is the, uh, you know, it's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit in psychoanalytic circles, but the idea of a corrective emotional experience. And, you know, this is really talking about, you know, the relationship with the analyst or the therapist, you know, is really what is 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 affecting the cure of the person, right? And of course, all the other things, the classic things that go into that, of course, transference, you know, result resolution of the transference, internalization, all these kind of things that go into it. Um, yeah. But if you look at it overall, I mean, this is really what the therapy is. You're having a corrective emotional experience. You're experiencing these things. You know, you're going back in your developmental time, especially if we think about terms of object relations, unintegrated stuff. Through the relationship, you're able to start integrating these things, and then you know, you know rebuilding your personality back in a more in a more uh, you know healthy way, right? So I'm absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think that's that's super important. It's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit in analytic circles. A little surprising to me, but in my research, we found that. But there actually are people now doing research on this idea of corrective emotional experience, and there are non psychoanalytic people looking at this idea you know, without really referring to psychoanalysis, talking about corrective emotional experience, like as if it's a brand new thing. And, you know, look, you know, we have 100 plus years of this, you know, that we've been, you know, analytic people have been talking about this. And now, you know, they're borrowing this thing from us. Hey, wait a minute, you know, give us credit where credit is due. You know, I mean, so this is super important. I So I, I, I completely thousand percent agree with you on that. I think that's a you know, and certainly with people with schizophrenia, this is very important. And I will say, even working with schizophrenic people non-analytically, so I had to work with schizophrenic people in the hospital, right? We were required to do behaviorism with them. But if you have an analytic mindset, even though you're doing behaviorism, you know, and writing up behavior plans and functional analyses and all these things that behaviorists do, you can still understand the patient from an analytic viewpoint. And you see this as somebody with, for instance, unintegrated object representations, and you understand their hallucinations as being unintegrated, you know, um, you know, aggressively tinged, you know, uh, uh, representations, object representations. It helps you, you know, un, you know, you can write a better behavior plan if you understand the person's, you know, if you understand that person psychoanalytically. You know, and and again, you can spend time with that patient and you can function as, you know, in that corrective emotional experience sort of way with the patient, even if you're not necessarily doing analysis with them. You know, it's not going to be the same as analysis, but it can be something that can be helpful to them. And so I do think these ideas that we have in psychoanalysis about working with you know, schizophrenic people can be very useful to non-analytic people. And so if you have people listening to your podcast who are therapists, maybe they do some analytic work, maybe they do some other kinds of, of, of work, they should realize that the analytic perspective can help them regardless of the kind of psychotherapy they're doing, um, you know, with schizophrenic people or, or with other kinds of uh, patients, you know, as well. So I, I do think, you know, and I, I am one because I am, and again, I should probably say this, you know, I'm not affiliated with really any institutes, you know, I'm kind of, unlike my dad, who's, you know, you know, very much affiliated with institutes, he's very much within the mainstream of the psychoanalytic world, you know, I tend to be a little bit out in the margin, right. And so I'm seeing lots of different types of therapists, you know, people who do a little psychodynamic therapy, they do a little family therapy, they do a little cognitive behavioral therapy, their, their practices are mixed of lots of different things. And, you know, in the psychology world, that's probably the majority of people, you know, I mean, the psychodynamic people in the psychology world are, you know, we've, we've become somewhat of a minority, you know, most people now doing 
most psychologists are doing CBT kinds of work. But for them, they should know that this approach is, is can be useful for them as well, right? So I'm trying to think of more integrative, thinking of these kind of analytic things, these ideas can be used in a more integrative sort of therapy practice, as well as in sort of purely psychoanalytic practice. And so I want to reiterate that to your listeners, because I do think, at least in the psychology world, I can't talk about, you know, the analytic world for people who come out of institutes, but in the psychology world, you know, I do think that more integrative psychotherapy is where is where we probably should be going. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really super happy about the hegemony of cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't think it's healthy. Um, and, yeah. you know, for, I don't think it's healthy for psychologists. I don't think it's healthy for our patients. Um, and so I, I would like to promote, you know, at least for people who are not going to get analytic training, you know, people promote, you know, maybe getting some training and then having an integrated view. So I'll just say that out there, put that out there. Um, you know, I, I don't know if most of your listeners are, are, are psychoanalysts or analytic people, but, you know, as as somebody who is, you know, I, I feel myself to be, you know, clearly, you know, as far as the way I practice and the way I think about things clearly in the analytic camp, I do think it's important that we need to talk to colleagues who do different kinds of things. I think it's super important. I do too. One thing I've noticed, um, just to go along with this, is that patients come in they, and patients are sophisticated these days and they say, you know, I've tried CBT. It hasn't worked. I've tried this. I've tried that. I need something analytically oriented. I hope you can help me. So yeah. Yeah. that says a lot when, when patients start to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, the other thing is, you know, also I think, you know, the CBT therapist should say that, you know, the CBT therapist should say, hey, you know, we've done some CBT, you got a little symptom reduction, you know, that's helpful, but it's not really, that's sort of the limit of what this is going to do. And, you know, you, you would benefit probably now from doing more psychodynamic work. And either yeah. you have a CBT therapist that can train psychodynamically and do both modalities, which is not impossible, or they can refer to a psychoanalyst or somebody, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. And, you know, I, I, in my doctoral students now, you know, I, I trained people last year and, um, you know, they're all CBT trained, you know, my, I had them in their, their second year students, they, they knew nothing about psychoanalysis, right? And so, you know, I gave them a mini course in my class, I gave them a mini course on psychoanalytic psychotherapy and said, you know, you ought to think about getting some training in this. And I think a few of them became very interested in this. And I think what you're going to see is, some of these students of mine are going to go out and practice and they're going to do CBT 80% of their work. And then 20% of their work, they're going to go on, they're going to go down to the analytic Institute down in LA and they have a wonderful, wonderful psychoanalytic psychotherapy uh, training program, Wednesday night program. They're going to go, it's a two-year program. They're going to get trained in that. And they'll have 20% of their patients that will want to go on and do more in-depth work. And they'll be able to do both and they'll be able to have a practice and they'll be able to sustain their practice mostly doing CBT, and they'll have some patients that they'll be able to work with more intensively. And maybe even a few yeah. of those people will go on and get full-blown psycho, psych, become full-blown psychoanalysts. So that's my hope for my young, the young people that I work with. And I try to encourage them from that, you know, and, and I, and, you well, know, we're not like the East coast here, you know, like you go to New York and you have analytic institutes everywhere and people are getting trained. That's we don't really have that here. We have a couple very good analytic institutes in LA, but you know um, you know, most psychologists at least are not, are not, you know, going there. And so, you know, cause they're all getting trained in CBT. So you got to tell the CBT people, Hey, 
these things it's it's not it's not it's not it's not you know one or the other you can do both it's perfectly possible to do both and you know you, you're young you have plenty of time in your career you know go do both you know why put a glass ceiling over your head you know get get right. really in-depth training which you can get in an analytic institute you really should go do it you know well as you're pointing out on the east coast i think a lot of institutes are having are, are developing programs um for sites uh, psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy like we have a PSP program it's two yeah. years you can just do that if you want to or yeah. if you want to go on you can but that's at yeah. least a lot you get a lot in two years yeah yeah and you know it, you know the way I did it you know was you know back in the day you know like what I did is I just had an analyst who supervised me you know yeah uh, Luca Di Donna who's an analyst in San Francisco fantastic analyst you know just you know, wonderful human being and a fantastic analyst. Um, you know, he supervised me for um, two, two and a half years, you know, and I just did it with him, you know, and I, there were no, there, they didn't have any psychotherapy programs. That was back in the time when, when the, uh, when the psychologists were suing the analytic institutes for the right to, you know, to get trained as analysts, you know, they weren't training very many psychologists back in the day. And so, right. but he, he supervised me and, you know, you, you had to get your training and catch as catch can. And of course, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have my dad. I can, you know, I, I consider my dad to be one of the people who trained me. So, you know, I mean, but, you know, now, you know, the young people can actually get training. They can get real supervised training and it's, there's a curriculum and there's things, you know, they go through and, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And so I, I, I try to encourage everybody to, to, to go take advantage of that. I think it's a wonderful thing. And, 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 you know, and, and I do hope that some of my students are going to go on and become full-blown analysts. And I've, I've had a few that I think would be very good, you know, and so I'm trying to, you know, push them, encourage them a little bit, you know, I think it's a good thing. That, that's, that's good. Keep pushing them. I do the same yeah. thing. Uh, there just came, one thing that came to my mind is that there is a program, it's for short called Kappa. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, it, I'm a member of Kappa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah I remember Kappa. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They want me to teach for free, so I, I'd love to do it. I just have to find the time when I can, when I can, uh, I can uh, do it. But yeah, they're wonderful people, and you know, the idea yeah. that we're how we're going to train people in China, you know. Yeah. Kappa is Chinese American Psychoanalytic Association, just so everybody knows. Um, yeah. Which yeah. yeah, great people, really nice people running it. And so, yeah, I really want to do teach a class for them. I just, I just have to find the time when I can do something for free, you know, because they don't well, pay you to do, you know. Starting in the fall, there is going to be a, a stipend for supervision. So maybe you just. Yeah, that. yeah. I probably won't supervise people. I think, I think I'm just going to try to do a, an academic class. I just have to figure teaching. out a time. Oh, that's what good. I really like to do is be able to zoom them into classes I'm already teaching. But then I have to get the yeah. university to agree to that. And they're, you know, they're, I don't know. We'll see how that works out. But yes. Yeah. Maybe we could teach the class together. Be half the work. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, let me know. If you want to do that, I, I would be more than interested. Yeah, let me know. It'd be funny. And I'll learn a lot from you. So that's actually a really benefit to me. So you can you can be my mentor. I, I would love it. Well, we'll see. Maybe we'll have to put something together. Or maybe it exists already. Um. Let me ask one thing that you and your father make a big point of, and that's the cultural aspect or yeah. of schizophrenic treatment, I think is one of the things. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, again, when we think about psychoanalysis, you know, really, you know, and again, my 
training and perspective is really kind of an object relations perspective, you know, kind of, Could you know, just briefly define that because some people don't know what it is, whether they're professionals. Yeah. So or... what we're, what we're really doing is we're really thinking about stuff. It's really in a way a developmental psychology. So what we're doing is we're really thinking about the development, the early development of an infant, you know, what happens, you know, a child is born and then their brain, you know, we can think of, you know, sort of physiologically, the brain goes through certain stages and grows in a certain way. But then that has a, a, you know, there's also a psychological thing that's going on, right? So, of course, Freud, you know, was the one to, you know, first map out, you know, the growth of psychic structures, right? Things like the ego and the superego that, that they emerge, you know, um, in, in the growing child. And then there's certain patterns of thought and behavior and emotions uh, that occur with, you know, as as the child is developing. So you know, interesting, we think about I tell my cognitive behavioral students, you know, they do cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy. And I say, well, you know, I come from a psychoanalytic world. We do emotional cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So, you know, it's also the affective states are super important, right? You know, to the development of cognition, right? So your affective states, what you are taking in, what you have, you know, your internal, you know, workings, your genetics, how your mind is working, how your brain is put together. And then you are internalizing stuff that you're experiencing in the outside world. What is the infant experience first? You see the infant experiencing, you know, has the experience of the mothering person, usually the mother, but it could be a father it could be in some cultures multiple mothers um, things like this but you're experiencing this mother in person you are making mental representations of that experience that experience is largely effective you're making mental representations you know the, the technical term for these people in the outside environment are objects it's kind of a weird term but that's what we use and you're making representations of those objects mental representations of those and those are in your mind and then over time, what happens is those mental representations become integrated. And then those things then help you form psychic structures, help you form your personality. And then you go through, you know, various stages, right? And, you know, with Freud, you, you know, Freud mostly focused on the Oedipal stage, which is four or five years old uh, in that sort of dynamic. But, you know, what happened was people came along later, mostly people from the British school, um, you know, and they they started saying, you know, we really can extend Freud's work and go back earlier. Right. And so you have people like Melanie Klein and Winnicott and, um, you know, all the all, all the British people, uh, Fairburn, um, you know, all this British people. And I'm, I'm skipping some of them. Um, and and so they started looking at what was going on earlier in the infant's you know developmental life, and then start and then what happens is is that that looking at those earlier things lets you work with people with more severe mental illness, people with you know personality disorders, and it's the subject of our talk, people with psychotic disorders, because those things are thought to originate in the very very early part of childhood. Right. So, you know, yeah. again, you have a child and maybe they have some genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia or, you know, they have genetic predisposition, their brain structure, their the neurobiology is not quite as well put together maybe the mother you know had a case of the flu or had uh, to um, uh, toxoplasmosis like she's talking about toxoplasmosis one of my pet subjects which is a, a a kind of a parasite that is in cat litter super interesting life cycle um has a huge 
huge correlation with schizophrenia, right? So if the mother, you know, is changing the cat litter, she's got toxoplasmosis, that child has a huge, huge, much, much greater chance of getting schizophrenia. There's something that causes some issue in the brain and the neurobiology of the brain that makes them more susceptible to schizophrenia in their childhood. Then they have some kind of, you know, as they go through this process where their mental structures are being, you know, created through this process of internalizing the outside world and then creating psychic structures because there's something predisposition there's some stress on them either through you know child abuse or whatever might going on the stressor then that 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 pattern of object relation integration doesn't go according to plan and there's a problem there and stuff remains the object the object representations remain unintegrated and Many schizophrenic people are able to sort of put together some kind of, um, and my dad calls an infantile psychotic self, some kind of, you know, self image where they're able to function to some degree. And then, you know, that that will include some kind of ego functions and things like this. But there's still like a psychotic core. There's still a lot of unintegrated stuff. And then later on, when they get older, something, some stressor comes along and then causes them, can trigger them into a psychotic break. That could be all sorts of things. Um, you know, one of the big things now um, that's people are very interested in is uh, marijuana use, right? That's seemed yeah. a lot of people think that that is a, that can be a trigger for psychosis. Somebody's really susceptible, trigger it. And then now they, they go through this, this, this psychotic experience where they have this sort of the, their infantile psychotic self sort of, you know, blows apart. My dad calls it a star explosion. And then they develop this sort of psychotic personality with a lot of grandiosity and a lot of unintegrated stuff floating around and you know, leading to all sorts of hallucinations and all sorts of kinds of things. Um, so that's kind of how we think about it in terms of object relations. So that was um, now I got off my topic, but that that is that is sort of what we think about in object relations. And again, this line of so now the idea in psychoanalytic work, we can go back and work with people, you know, because of because we're looking at this very early developmental stage, we can go back and work with this. And there's certain techniques that we use. And again, at the sort of borderline personality level, personality sort of stage, you know, a lot of people like my dad and, of course, uh, Otto Kernberg uh, and others, you know, have sort of given us a way to, you know, some techniques for working with, with, uh, with, with people with this kind of stuff. And then again, the idea is that you can extend that, at least my dad's idea is you can extend that to working with people with, with, uh, you know, psychoses, right. And so that, that's, that's kind of what, what sort of we see in, in modern object relations kinds of things. That's not to say that people who have schizophrenia or personality disorders don't experience the other levels of you know they like they they do experience they can't have an experience of uh like a like a edible complex right but usually you'll find you know it, it's different than you would you would experience with working with a neurotic person okay? maybe more aggression it may have other things going on you know things like that um and it may be what my dad calls a reaching up, you know, they're reaching up, they're still having experience, but they're reaching up a little bit. And you have to be very careful that somebody comes in and they're presenting you a kind of, a, you know, neurotic, you know, Oedipal, you know, kind of situation. But really what's underlying it is, oh, there may be something, you know, you know, you know, the, the foundation of the house is not yeah. well put together, you yeah. know. So you can't work on the second story. Well, you can. Exactly. Right? Is it, is it exactly. Sound? 
exactly that's a, good, that's exactly a good metaphor and so you got to know by hearing about the second story that there's something wrong down in the basement right and so the yeah. idea is you got to go down in the basement and work on that stuff and then and then work your way back up to the second floor yeah i, I don't know how much you've uh, read probably a lot of, of wilford beyond's work but i always yes. thought Look, um, I always thought his idea of, I, I don't know about the terminology, but the idea of the alpha function, yeah. the mother serves a purpose. So a baby is distraught, anxiety written to the hilt, can't tolerate it, doesn't have the capacity to do anything. But if the mother can take that in, metabolize it, and yes. give it back to the baby in a more palatable way, then I, yeah. I mean, that's a game changer. Absolutely. With a mother, father, or analyst. Absolutely. So this leads to the idea of resilience, right? So say you have a baby who's got all the epigenetic things or whatever, you know, you know, problems that, that predispose them to schizophrenia, but then they have a mother who is able to do what you just described, right? That baby may have a lot of resilience as it grows up. It may have resilience toward actually developing schizophrenia. And that's what we see. And this is one of the reasons why I think you see that child abuse is such, you know, is so, um, you know, uh, has so much causative power for schizophrenia that, you know, in those cases, the mother is not providing those kind of things. And then the resilience isn't there. And this is the other thing that goes back to the talk we're talking about culture, right? In some cultures, for instance, where you have an extended family, that baby may experience, you know, multiple mothers. And yeah. my thought is, and I think this is something that ought to be researched more. My thought is that, you know, these, these, in these kind of traditional societies where they have multiple mothers, you know, this may provide resilience against schizophrenia, even if there's environmental insults, right? And this may also be one of the reasons why you see, you know, an increase in schizophrenia among immigrants, right? Because you have these people who live in a traditional culture, there's extended families, there's multiple motherings of the child. Then one family decides we're gonna immigrate. We're, you know, we're living somewhere in Africa, we're gonna immigrate to England, right? Well, guess what? Now they're torn away from that society. The multiple mothers, they're, you know, they're under stress because they're immigrating. They don't have that, you know, the resilience isn't there. And now you're seeing an increase in, in rates of schizophrenia. So that may be one of the things that, 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 uh, that uh, has to do with that. So I, I do think that's an area that should be uh, researched more. I'm, I'm really interested in this. Another thing I would try to twist my doctoral students' arms, to, you know, I, they, they, I drive them crazy because every other day I'm giving them ideas for their dissertations that they should be working on. And, uh, you know, if I could get some of the medical doctors, the residents I'm working on to do some of this research. Uh, interestingly enough, I work with uh, internal medicine, orthopedics, surgery residents and i they're all wonderful and they seem to like me a lot the psychiatrists don't want to work with me so they <laughs> think you're going to twist their arms probably go figure you know <laughs> the ones who i actually and, and it's interesting enough the only psychi psychiatric studies i've done working in the hospital have been with surgeons which is really interesting because the surgeons have people coming in for surgery and they're on certain certain um, you know neuroleptic drugs or something and so they want to research you know or their people come in and they have uh, they have an, they're addicted to something and so they want to research like the treatment of those things you know psychiatric treatment because before the person gets into surgery to know if it's going to help them you know fascinating but anyway that's a whole nother thing you know the 
you know, you know, but God bless the psychiatrists. And thank goodness we have a residency program because we need more of them in the county where I live, you know, but they, they don't really seem to want to work with me. So, you know, I, um, you know, it's too bad. It is their loss. Well, I don't know about that, but, you know, but I, I, I would like to work with them. And I think this is the kind of stuff I'd like to talk to them about, but, you know, um, I do think it's important, but I, I do think looking at, especially where I live, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of immigrants and we have a lot yeah, of immigrant yeah. families and, and well, you know, everywhere in the country. I mean, yeah, everywhere now. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> but, you know, it would be certainly a good thing to be, you know, cognizant of, you know, looking at, you know, the, how people's family structures have changed, those kind yeah. of things. Very important. It, it reminds me of, not to get off the topic, but I think it circles back around to it, is the sense of community and how that, how important it is and how mm-hmm. it's affected our political system a great deal. It's yeah. Not yeah. feeling like they, they're part of something, part of the small town or part of the city government yeah. or whatever. So community, oh, yeah. whether it's immigrants or... Political it's very important. You know, there, there, there was a couple studies, I think they were done in the Netherlands, somewhere Scandinavian countries, where they looked at um, uh, uh, first incidents of, you know, first psychotic break, first instance of psychosis. And they found that, you know, that that in, in countries, you know, mostly third world countries where the first line of treatment for somebody who has schizophrenia is not to medicate them. They found 70% of the people were were did not have a second psychotic episode as where in industrialized countries where the first line of treatment is to medicate people. They yeah. found that 70% of people who were medicated had another episode. It was the exact opposite. And so very controversial research and psychiatrists don't like to hear about it, uh, but definitely something to be said, you know, as, as my psychiatrist friend said, when I was talking to him about, it, he said, well, what are we going to do with, when they come show up in the hospital and having a fluid psychotic break? What are we supposed to do? You know, what, they don't, we don't have an extended family system here. We can send people home to and have their extended family take care of them with multiple, you know, parenting people and multiple caregivers. We don't have that here. Right. So we, we we're else we're going to do we have to give them drugs you know and i think you had a good point and it goes back to your point that you know if you have that traditional society if people have a sense of community you know perhaps there is more you know ability to to you know take care of somebody not necessarily medicate them or medicate them as heavily you know but give them some support we really have a lack of that here in this country and of course you know we have now more political polarization and that is just making the problem worse and you know i mean i think that's going to go to your your new book is going to talk a lot about that kind of thing and i think it's really quite fascinating and um and we have to look at the leaders you know the sort of pathology in our leaders which relates to that lack of community and the polarization and you know and and so you know as i'm reading your new book i'm thinking about all these things it's really quite fascinating and you know so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying reading about it, you know, but it is, it is something I think, I think it's great that somebody in the psychoanalytic community, you know, such as yourself, you know, an eminent person, you know, is, is calling out these things. So, you know, I think that's, that's really wonderful. And it does relate to things like schizophrenia, you know, because, yeah. you know, the more polarized, the less community we have, the less resources we have for people, you know, the more incidents, the more stress, the more incidents we're going to see of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I know you have, uh, well, first I'd like to say thank you. And the second thing is that in your book, 
there's enough material for three or four podcasts. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. So I hope, I hope people read the book because there is a lot of information. Oh, uh, whether you. you're somebody who is, whether somebody has a, a great deal of background or whether they don't, they have maybe a relative. It's uh, it's it's accessible to everyone. Oh, uh, is there anything you'd like to add? <laughs> so no, much not really. I really appreciate you talking to me. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we did try to write the book so that a lay audience could read it. Um, you know, there is some technical stuff in there. I will say, too, that, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that is not psychoanalysis. You know, we have the, the middle of the book is very psychoanalytic and we go into case histories and things. But, you know, if you want to know what the sort of latest, you know, thinking is about schizophrenia, just the scientific thinking, you know, the neurobiology, the genetics, uh, you, there's a bit about other, other types of psychotherapy treating it. I think we even talk a little bit about treating schizophrenia with acupuncture, you know, I mean, which is also a very interesting thing that should be researched. Um, you know, there's, there's other stuff in the book as well, you know, uh, just, just if you want to know just generally what you know, what, uh, in general, you know, the sort of landscape of, you know, of, of treatment of schizophrenia is about, you know, I think it provides that. And, and, and I like the fact that we put psychoanalysis square in the center of that. It's not something marginal. It's not something way outside or weird. It's actually fits in really well with, with all the other scientific things that knowledge of schizophrenia. And of course, as we do more, what we're now calling, um, you know, neuropsychoanalysis, you know, right. we're seeing actually things that are, you know, brain structures that relate to the psychic structures that Freud talked about. I was just listening to a lecture by Robert uh, Saplosky, who's a professor at, uh, at Stanford. He's a behavioral neuroscientist, and he's talking about different parts of the brain, you know, and he's just basically describing the superego, for instance, some part, you know, and, and yeah. describing the ego, you know, parts of the brain that, that really relate to these things. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, we should be thinking about psychoanalysis, you know, in, in the mainstream of the scientific understanding of the mind or the brain. And, uh, and and there's a lot of people working on this now, and I think it's really fantastic. I'd like to think that our book makes a small contribution to this, um, yeah. you know, because I think it's important. And I think, you know, you know, we should be in the mainstream. We should be part of the discussion, you know, as psychoanalytic people. Yeah, it's so interesting. This is where Freud started. People don't yes. really put that together, but he was yeah. talking about yeah. neuroscience. Lots of ways. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, psychoanalysis is neuropsychoanalysis. You know, I mean, it is all, if Freud were alive today, he would be incorporating, you know, you know, modern neuroscience and probably modern evolutionary psychology into his theories because he was a, you know, big, you know, he liked Darwin a lot and he liked neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely. So we should continue that work and, you know, in, in the spirit of Freud and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and include all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying nice things about the book, and um, I hope people will read it and enjoy it. And, um, you know, if there's more than happy to come and talk about it any time, and you know, just let me Great. know. Okay, okay. Okay, well, we'll be talking again. I know you have another book coming out soon, so. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. And it was great talking to you. Great to, to meet you in person and uh, look forward to, to speaking some more. Okay, great. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, take care now. Bye.